Well, uh, my name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here, and today we're going to be continuing our study of the book of Psalms uh, and about worship, how what we do here together when we're gathered uh, to worship actually impacts us and trains us in our scattered lives of worshiping Jesus with every moment, every day of our lives. And, and today we're going to be reading and looking at Psalm 126. Uh, it's a psalm of restoration. It's a psalm of joy. It's a psalm of thanksgiving. Uh, and that's what today's topic is all about. Uh, but first, uh, I am a sucker for marketing, for ads. Uh, recently, I was on Facebook. I only get on Facebook about once, you know, a week, right? Uh, that was a joke. Uh, recently, I was on Facebook, and I saw an ad for a company called Joy Mode. Joy Mode. This is the ad. Joy Mode. Less talk. More action. Make time for what matters most. This is behind a picture of people playing croquet on a field or sitting at a beach, uh, having the time of their life. Make time for what matters most. Get access to thousands of products. Be the best, most fun version of you. For only $49 a month, you can have unlimited access to joy. You can have unlimited access to products like unicorn-shaped inner tubes or giant Jenga sets or virtual reality kits that thousands of other sweaty foreheads have used before yours for only $49 a month. That's all it takes to experience the very best version of you, the most fun version of you. The best way to be in this world. Joy mode. This is what we're told is the path to joy. Come, become a fun person. Get cool stuff. Experience the world. Travel. Eat. Drink. Collect air miles. Be merry. Then you, too, could have joy. Uh, this is the story of restoration that we hear every day. Don't do the things that you don't like. Uh, don't do the things that suck life out of you. Only do the things that make you a fun and happy person to be around. Don't hang out with people who aren't fun and happy people, who suck the life out of you. Don't spend time with them because they will destroy your life. And what you really want more than anything else in the world is an inflatable unicorn. That's how you have your best life today. But what if all the gadgets in the world can't actually fix you? Can't actually make you the best version of you? What if the person you dislike the most, you can't escape from because it's you. What if the most painful, the most self-inflicting uh, person in your life of pain and punishment isn't someone out there, but it's someone within you? And what if the, the, the gadgets and the things break? Or if the runway ends and the frequent flyer miles dry up, and there's nowhere to run, there's nowhere to go, 
except turning around and facing and examining your own relentless pain that's all self-inflicted sin. Or the, the sin that's being inflicted on you in their own shame and their own guilt. Is there a joy mode for that? Is there an upgrade policy for that? When things go terribly bad, can you just go to $89.99 a month? Does that give you something? See, it's interesting, the Joy Mode ad doesn't have any photos of people in hospitals or courtrooms or in traffic. It's just people on a beach and people playing croquet. The Bible is actually fascinating because it describes joy always alongside sorrow. So if you find things about joy, you'll find things about suffering in the Bible. And it gives us hope, the, the Scriptures... Not an escape from weeping or sadness or from being a sad person. But the hope that the Bible gives is that there's a restoration of you today and of our world today. That's the only way towards joy. And so somewhat uh, mysteriously or uh, strangely, it says joy and gladness and laughter and shouts of happiness and thanksgiving. Those come in the Bible right alongside your life. It, it, the Bible says you don't escape from your life or find you know, additional shiny packages to join into your world. It actually, the Bible says, joy comes from a remaking of you, from a renewing of your present soul, from getting down deep inside of you and changing you. And so here is a profound uh, sort of truth for us today is that Jesus doesn't just redeem you. Often we can get stuck in this idea that, that what happens with God is we have this entire list of citations and rule-breaking and trespassing you know, fees that we have to pay back to God. And then Jesus comes in and He pays that debt, which is, this is a big piece of the Gospel. But we think that's all Jesus does, is pay our debt. So then we can go into life and say, hey, I was, I was owed all this money, but, but God actually paid the full sacrifice for me, so now I can walk uh, in the same life that I had. But what we miss when we say that that's all that Jesus does is that Jesus doesn't just redeem us, He restores us completely. He makes us a whole new person, a whole new identity. He gives us a new life, a new world. And see, when we think Jesus just redeems you and we stop there, we live a life of trudgery, of just sort of thinking, if I can fix myself, if I can build myself up, if I can just work really hard, if I can escape all these other things, if I can consume more stuff, then I could finally have happiness because all I'm doing is biding my time until the world ends. But restoration that the Bible talks about is even in sorrow, we have joy because He has restored us and He is going to restore the world. And so while the Christian life says that suffering is guaranteed, there aren't any sort of like appendixes saying, hey, when you're a Christian and by chance you experience suffering, this is what you do. No, the, the New Testament actually says, when you suffer, because you will, it's guaranteed 98 and three quarters percent whatever. Everyone will suffer. But the Bible says, while you're suffering, you will have 
laughter, gladness, and a never-ending, eternal joy. That's why the Bible is fascinating. And, it, and that's never anywhere more clear than in Psalm 126. And so that's our, our psalm for today, and let's, let's read that uh, if you want more preaching. Yeah, I just, if you're gone for five weeks, you just preach a bunch in your introduction. Psalm 126 says this. This is God's word. It says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. And the Lord has done great things for us. And we are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Those who go out weeping, bearing the seed for sorrow, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. The psalm begins with when. Very few places in the whole book of the psalms, there's you know, a bunch of them, does the psalm begin with when, as if we're mid-memory. As if he's saying, when, remember way back when. Once upon a time, there was this past moment. There was a, a memory of a historical time where something occurred. He's not saying, hey, remember when your fathers, or hey, haven't you heard some sort of fairy tale story? He says, no, when. As if to say, at the very beginning of the psalm about restoration, he's saying, hold an image in your mind. This image in your mind when the world, when you were restored. It's a psalm about joy, but it begins with when, not about today. Saying that, that joy doesn't come from a, a certain list of circumstances for us right now, but he's saying uh, joy is, is a reality that happens because restoration has already occurred. When? It says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. And here he's talking about the restoration of a people, the people of Israel, who had been exiled and who had been conquered by Babylon. Babylon was the, the most powerful, strongest uh, nation in the world. And Israel was a tiny nation that had slowly seen their land deteriorate. But Zion uh, is not just a cute nickname for Jerusalem. Zion was this mountain, this high place, that represented not just uh, their capital city, but it represented the whole idea of God making the world new. See, when they were led out of Israel and led out of Jerusalem and the whole city was burning, it wasn't just that they had lost their homeland or that they had lost their identity as a people. It's that Zion, the hope of the world, of God's presence with His people, making Himself known, was also burning to the ground. That's what Zion means. It's not just a location. It actually just conveys that that's the place where God gets what He wants, where His people can know Him, and where the whole world can know His presence in that place. And so the psalm begins by saying, remember how God restored Zion. So these people, after they were left and they were dragged across the desert in shackles to be slaves and servants in this other land, years later they were actually brought back to start their country 
again, to rebuild Zion, to rebuild and to see God's presence with His people. And they said, we were like those who dream. Because you see, refugees don't go home. It's a sad reality of refugee work. When a family gets all of their possessions and they flee a country that's, that's being torn apart by war and genocide and they go across the border and then they engage with the UN, they're not going home. The same is true for slaves. People throughout all history who have been dragged out of their roots and out of their place and taken somewhere else to work for someone else and on their land, they don't go back home. A country that gets conquered and destroyed and leveled to the ground does not exist again. But this is what happened. He says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, when God made the city anew, when He rose, literally, a people from the dead into life. A nation that was in ashes now is a nation and a people again. And so it says, when the Lord restored, when that restoration happened, we were like people who were dreaming. We we walked around and we said, can you believe this is happening? Nowhere else in history has this sort of thing occurred. But here we are, we're back. This has happened. We were like those who dreamed. And it says, our mouth, I love it, it's a unified, huge mouth of people filled with laughter, their tongue with shouts of joy. The psalm begins with, you can't contain your joy because of this restoration that has already happened. And this is our restoration too. This is what the gospel of Jesus, this good news about Jesus, that's what's true for you today also. And it's just as shocking. You were once just a person who did as you chose. You were a citizen of the kingdom of wrath and darkness and evil. You had to decide for yourself what was good and what was right. You had to, as an orphan, wander the world and protect yourself and provide for yourself. You were a refugee who had nowhere to belong. You were dead. You were stranded. But then Christ, because of His life, His death, His resurrection, a historical moment that happened in the past, you're actually raised from that death into life. No longer are you lost, but you have a home. You're now a citizen of the kingdom of God where He says, I get what I want here. And it's love and hope and joy. You were an orphan and now you're back with your Father. This restoration has happened. See, I love this psalm because it doesn't start by saying, hey, look to the horizon, you know, like like a politician might. Hey, just elect us one more time and we'll restore everything. Or like an ad on Facebook, just subscribe to one more thing and then your best life will happen. Now, the psalm begins, when, way back when, the best thing that could ever happen, dead coming to life, has happened. But he doesn't stop there, right? The, the second part of verse 2, he says, Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. And the Lord has done great things for us. And we're glad. 
See, not only is there this internal restoration that, had, that they had as a people that filled them with shouts of joy and shouting, this big festival party that just kept going and kept going, but all of the people around them, all of their neighbors, all of their, uh, the, the countries that looked at them and said, you're such fools for believing in this God. Like, you're so out of touch. What did God do for you when you were being destroyed? You should have 40 gods like we do. You should be giving more of yourself to fertility gods and all of these things. But in that moment when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, all the neighboring nations came and said, the Lord has done really good things for you. See, the the inward restoration is visible not just in their worship, but it's visible to others. God's work is clear. And you can also notice, too, that it wasn't, oh, you guys pulled yourselves up by your bootstraps. That's amazing. You were captives, and you somehow escaped. No, it says clearly, it says, they use the personal name for God. They say, wow, Yahweh has done something good for you. See, this outward evidence of God's grace makes the entire world pause and then say even specifically the name of God and his character. And this, just as an aside, has always been the biblical strategy of God to make himself known in the whole world, was to to have a people that would experience restoration and renewal in the presence of God, that then everyone around would look to and say, oh, that's who God is. I can see it because it's through these people. And that pattern wasn't just like an Old Testament thing. It's also a New Testament thing. In the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47 Uh, It tells the story about the very beginning of the church where the disciples received the Holy Spirit and they were telling people about Jesus. They were telling them to put their hope in Him. People were being baptized. And then this church existed that was caring for one another, sharing uh, all their resources, being devoted to prayer and communion and sharing meals together. And they were experiencing such a powerful picture of restoration that it says that there were people being added to them day by day, that there were all these people around these households that said, Jesus has done something good for you. And this is why, just to remind us, or what a missional community is. It's a group of people that are following Jesus and worshiping Jesus and experiencing that renewal in such a way that the people around us don't just say, wow, there's a cool community that really you know, knows how to do a potluck. But they say, wow, Jesus, a specific person, has restored you and done something great for you. And then we say, yeah, he really has. It's true. This is what we hope to see through our missional communities. That that as we grow up in the gospel as we see more and more images of Jesus, as we get renewed day by day, as we just remember the historical restoration of Jesus on a cross, then Jesus uh, walking out of an empty tomb, that, the, that as we're restored, the people around us wouldn't just say, you guys are great, but they would say, look at what Jesus has done for you. And we get to respond and declare, yes, he's done great things for me. And we are really glad. And so in these first three verses, 
He's saying, remember what happened. Remember this restoration. Remember the restoration that all your family and friends pointed to and said, wow, something's happened in your life. Remember the fruit of your redemption in Christ. It's as if the author in these first verses is saying, that alone, this thing that has happened to you, this past restoration, is, that alone is worthy of an entire life of joy and celebration and party. But then he asks for more, as we do as humans. And it's good. In verse 4 he says, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams of the Negev. Here he, he moves towards the present and he says, today, right now, restore. Restore all of us. In this very time. Yes, we remember and we're still excited about it. But today, can you restore me all over again? And he, and he uses this image of the streams of the Negev. Uh, you might be thinking like, no, it's up there, it's Negev. Uh, I'm just trying to pronounce it correctly. Uh, but, you know, bees become bees, those sorts of things. The Negev is the southeastern part of Israel. Uh, and there's no people there. There aren't farms there. It's just hard soil. It's as if it's just one giant rock that's like plopped into most of their country. Uh, there's some canyons, there's some valleys, but it's just dry, hard soil. Every now and then, uh, a little tiny thing might grow up, but then it'll die pretty quickly. It's a desert. It's dry land is an understatement. And so when he says, restore us like the streams of the Negev, you might like want to Google a river or something. Surely there's a Negev River, you know, like the Nile. No, there, there's none of that. But what he's talking about is when it rains in this region, in the Negev. And you can YouTube this, and it is pretty remarkable. When it rains, the water comes flooding down, and it begins to roll over the entire land. The, the water fills up all the valleys, and then the, they begin to rush through the, the valleys that already existed. And the water is so powerful that each time it rains, it creates new canyons as it cuts through the ground that no human, no machine could cut through, but the river cuts through it, and it begins to see this huge flooded lake. It just becomes water. And then when the water finally evaporates or subsides into the soil and the holes that it's created, what's left is beautiful fields of not just green grass, but blossoming flowers. And when the water leaves you, there's uh, canyons that didn't exist before. There's contours of the land. The land isn't even the same. So they don't even have maps for this because it just changes every time the water comes. And he says, restore us like the streams of the Negev. Bring this rushing water onto the hard, bitter, apathetic, uh, distant parts of our souls Come, and don't just come and bring, you know, a, a little sprinkle of water, but, but flood us and break the ground itself. Des destroy the hard parts, but leave in its place this blossoming, flowerful, vibrant life. 
restoring us today. This is also exactly what Christ does in us as well. And this is our fundamental hope that we have even when we gather together in places like this. When we get together on Sunday and and as we celebrate and we rejoice, we're saying all once more, oh God, restore us. Jesus, restore us. Remove the apathy and the cynicism and the bitterness and the hardness of our souls. Take that away and cut us deeply that we might be uh, restored as a beautiful garden once more. And each time we get together in our DNA groups or as we live in our missional communities or as we drive to work or feed our children breakfast in the morning, that we would say, Jesus, make us new. Pour out your spirit into our lives that we might see you more clearly, that we might uh, see the sin of our life actually removed. Make us new. Make us saints that have become alive. The writer is saying, not only is there some sort of past restoration moment that's worthy of celebrating for an eternity, but Christ will actually restore you now and today. And there's no more uh, beautiful or humble request to make to God than restore me. Or there's no better member of this church than one who prays, restore our church today. That we wouldn't just sit back and say, wow, like, we've got good coffee now. Or like, man, our community's so fun. Like, did you go and have that, like, wonderful gluten-free pasta? It was amazing. But that we would actually have this yearning of this, it's sort of this unrelenting request. If everything you've given us in Jesus up until now is worth celebrating forever, this, this crazy request to go to God later and then say, yes, you have done great things and we're glad. Can you keep doing great things in my life? And then he turns uh, to the future. Uh, in verse 5, he says, Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. He begins talking about uh, the people that would go out and plant fields of grain. But he, he, you might think that, man, planting is fun. Like, I love gardening. It's like to plant a seed, it's so filled with hope, like this could become a really wonderful tomato. Like, this is going to be great. How many zucchinis do you think this seed will produce? And, and farming, and you would think like planting seeds would be this sort of joyful, fun, optimistic moment of life. Kind of like the beginning of school uh, that, I don't know if it's starting for anyone in here, but for like Nora, she's like, school is so exciting, but it's also so terrifying. It starts tomorrow. You would think that that's like the beginning of that, that there would be filled with joy. That it actually it looked like this Van Gogh painting. Uh, yeah, that's sewing, right? Like bright and colorful. Uh, this is called a man planting a vineyard. He's just walking around like grabbing seeds and flinging it into the air, waiting for it to come back. But this passage actually says, those who sow in tears, those who go out weeping, bearing for seed, this bearing, it's as if it's a burden. 
And then it looks like this instead. This is what the writer is talking about. It's not colorful. It's not happy. It's not beautiful. Here Van Gogh just does one of his like intense sketchings and it's black and white and there's a person with his hand to the plow trying to get into dirty, uh, hard soil to finally put something in it. Here he says, those who sow in sorrow. You sow in tears when there's no hope of reaping. There's no hope of a of produce in the end. That you're putting stuff in the ground, but you look at all the circumstances around you, you look at your own past and how you've tried really hard. And all the stuff that you put into the ground, what comes up withers and dies. Or the the streams come and it washes everything away. You sow in tears when you think the conditions will destroy all of your effort. And when longing for some sort of fruit or some sort of life out of your work just seems like pointless optimism. When you're going out to do the exact same thing you did yesterday, which ended in destruction, you sow in tears. Even this word, uh, bearing seed for sowing, it's, the same, it's this idea of having this huge boulder on your back. That kind of burden that it is to plant. Work in all of life, it's as if to say, is pointless and ends in death. The going out, those who go out, those who go to do life and, and to live in an existence and to build a family and to care for children and to, to do creative work and to have vibrant friendships, the people who are going out into that, but they're doing so with sorrow in their hearts because they think none of those things are going to work out. There's no fruit to be taken from that. And I believe that this isn't just some sort of agricultural analogy that the Bible loves, but it's true for us. Uh, And so I actually want to ask us of a question, because I could sit here and list off examples, but maybe we could share our own examples. So the question is, what circumstances situations or moments of your life feel like sowing in tears. You guys get to talk. Not just Trip asks questions. Once a year, I ask questions. <laughs> yeah, go for it. Mm. Yeah, it doesn't matter, like all the people, your friends, your family that you love, and you want them to understand Jesus, but it just feels like that's never going to happen. Yeah. What else feels like sowing in tears? Yeah. When you have a really stressful work environment that you're trying to be on mission to your coworkers. Yeah. Yeah, when the, your work environment's super stressful. And you think, today's the day I'm going to show them the light of the world. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, can, I had a job like that where I was driving every day. I would cry on the way to work. Uh, and it didn't matter how many encouraging notes me and I would put into my suit coat. 
because you would think, oh, yesterday we did such a good job, and you know, it's and we accounted for all the mistakes that we made the previous week or the previous quarter, and this one's going to be totally different. And then you arrive, and it's the same cluster that it was the day before. Yeah. What else feels like sowing in tears? Yeah. When you're trying to vacuum your house, and someone else in the room is walking around with mud on their shoes. That's a good. <laughs> that is a good image. Yeah. When you're trying to clean up your house, and then somebody is coming right behind you, destroying it. Yeah, we have these we have these pillows for our couches that I think should go in a very specific place, and I keep putting them in that place. And Truman keeps coming and yanking them out and throwing them around. Uh, and I hung out with some of my roommates from college, and they're still doing that sort of stuff to me. Uh, I thought my two-year-old was bad. They're worse. What else? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, being a special needs parent where the needs are the same or worse or more. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, parenting in general. Or really just you could expand it even to relationships in general. Like, well, we had this really good conversation and I thought we like forgave one another, but here we are again 5 minutes later. Yeah. Or I thought I learned all these lessons on how to like talk to people. Yeah. Yeah, the the reality of our world is we keep each day we go out into the fields and we know that what we're putting into the ground, even from our own hearts and our own perspectives and our own attitudes, are actually just laced in selfishness and sin. So one of the ways relationships is always broken is because really what we want is we want a good relationship for ourselves and it keeps going downward, right? Or, or this effort that we put where we're like the God of our world. Or we look around and it's just we live in a world that's very broken and destroyed and perverted. And it feels like sowing in tears. But the word that he uses, he says, shall reap and shall come home. It's not an optimistic word like hopefully those who go out sowing will come back happy. Uh, Portugal, where I grew up, was a very uh, nautical uh, society where they kept putting people on boats and having them go around the world. And as they went out and the, as they travel around the world to discover different things, uh, some people on the, on the dock would yell terrible things. I'm like, you're all going to die. Have fun falling off the, the face of the earth. Flat earth theory. Uh, that's what they were doing. And then the other half would, would be their, their families and priests and all these people saying, oh, I hope that somehow they're going to come back. And, and people would walk around and try to encourage each other, don't worry, they're not going to fall off the face of the earth. I think they'll come back. They probably will. Everything's going to be fine. It's not that sort of thing. Here the writer says, no, you definitely will. Those who go out sowing in tears will definitely come back with shouts of joy. They'll definitely come home with shouts of joy, with sheaves of grain. That, that in the future, 
There's this guarantee moment of life, of abundance. When he says carrying sheaves with them, it's this image of a whole field of where they can't even contain and hold together all of the fruit of the harvest. And that it belongs to us, that there's this life that we could have never imagined. That the Lord hasn't just restored us once. That Jesus didn't just do something remarkable on the cross and in the resurrection. But that guarantees a future reality where there are no more tears. Where the world has been healed. Where all of the brokenness is put back together in a more vibrant universe than existed ever before. The Lord will restore the fortunes forever. Uh, Van Gogh, just to keep it on, because uh, Van Gogh is cool, he's Dutch. Uh, this is a picture of sheaves. So th- you have a big field and you have all this produce and then you wrap them all together so you can you know, hurl them through the air. But compare this through the first one of this dark sketch of a person sowing in tears. Here you just have bounty. Abundance. That's what he's saying. You will come home joyful and amazed. I can't believe there was this much fruit. I did this whole life thinking it was all pointless. That it didn't matter what I did to love my children, to care for those around me. But in the end, what I see is this huge abundance. How did that happen? This is, I love this picture. And then there's this one. Yeah, you can go to it. It's good. Of restoration. Of this future moment. Where these people who are laying down, enjoying one another, they're not fighting. That's a really, I like this about my own children too. When they're asleep, they're not fighting. Uh, But you see a a man and a woman lying gracefully. You can see even behind it, they have piles of sheaves around them. And they have their hooks for the harvest, but they don't need them anymore. And the, the, the man has taken his shoes off because the labor has ended as well. And all you have is this huge piles of abundance everywhere around. Abundance to produce bread and produce life. There will be a day when all of our sowing in tears is transformed into an image like this where we're with God and He says, Well done, good and faithful servant. How beautiful are the feet of those who carried good news all over. In your suffering, in your sorrow, I was with you. Those who go out weeping come home. Come into the home of God with joy. This is the restoration that we engage when we come together on Sundays. This is why we have shouts of joy that even in the midst of the desert moments of life and the sorrow and the suffering and the crying, (laughs) what we'll reap will be unexpected. It'll be like a dream. It'll be a life and it'll be an abundance that we didn't think could come from what we put in the ground. And that 
uh, my friends, is the truth of the gospel. What we reap isn't what we sow. What we get from the harvest, or what we get out of life, what we get for eternity is not what we put into our life. It's not what we tried to do. Because the truth is, what we've tried to do in life, in our going out, was signing up more and more for joy mode. Uh, We laugh because it's true. It's like, ah, like even right now, it's like, I could have joy if I had a grill, then I would have joy. Or if I could get a great dame, then I would have joy. Uh, We sign up for that, much to the suffering of the people around us. Uh, we, we purchase things so then we can't give to other people who are in dire need. We, we abuse our power so we can have more money so then we can get more stuff that we need. We, what we put into our life is not something that produces abundance and life and wholeness. What we keep putting into it is sin. We worship other things. We, we lavish praise on humanity and our fathers and our mothers and our children. And we think if they could worship me in return, then we'd all be good. What we put into our life is death. We keep planting death day by day. And what we should reap is that. We plant death. What we reap should be death. Like, that's how science works, right? You don't put a watermelon into the ground and then in its place get this pumpkin. But that's what the psalmist is actually saying. This is the reality of the truth of Jesus. That he reaps and what he gets, the fruit of his life, is actually what we keep putting in the ground. So Jesus puts, he spends his whole life living completely submitted to God, being a humble servant, faithfully loving every single person in his life, healing people, casting out demons. He's the kind of person that we need in this world. We need millions of people like Jesus. We need just one person like Jesus. He did it all. And then at the end, instead of getting a parade, he got a cross and death, which is what we should get. Everybody else was planting death, but he harvests death on the cross. And then Jesus gives us the fruit of a resurrection as our harvest, as our celebration moment. We get to reap and experience this this picture of abundance is not from good job us, It's just a picture that hangs on Jesus' own selfless death and then His love for us. He gives us a life out of the grave. He gives us a life of hope, a life of revival of our own families, of our own church, of our own city. And it guarantees for us an end just like this. So that is restoration. And that is joy a much better joy mode. And this is why our gatherings end in celebration. You know, we uh, just to recap where we've been so far. uh, Our our gatherings begin with the call to worship, with the strumming of an instrument like calling us to say, hey, uh, God is the one who's worthy of all of our value and affection. It's God and God alone. We're called and we're invited in to adore God, period. 
And then we're, after that, after seeing this holy, magnificent God, we confess. We say, wow, I'm not like you. I'm not at all. In fact, my heart is bent towards sinning and being opposed to you. And so we confess, Jesus, that's who you are. This is who I really am. And that's confession. And then we move into assurance, which is, wow, we confessed our sins, but Jesus is so faithful to forgive. And we see the cross, and we walk in the beauty of his love and his salvation. And then we move into a time of petition, where we say, God, change us, though. We don't want to just do this cycle where we confess and then experience you know, forgiveness. We want to confess, experience forgiveness, and be like, changed. And then we come to the Word, and we listen to it, and we say, God, change us through the Word. Show us who you are. Your Word, speak to us. Then we gather in communion, and we taste, and we eat, and say, Jesus has done great things for us. We have been bought and purchased, redeemed, restored. And then we, you know, we don't just hang out in the back and chat it up, though some of us do. It's okay. Like, there's no police back there. But we come back into this area again and we shout with joy and we sing praises to Him. And even in that moment, some of us, all we'll be able to remember is there's a historical reality that Jesus lived, died, and rose again. And that is enough for me to be celebratory. Others of us will come back and say, God, restore my hard heart. Still, others of us will come and we will celebrate and we say, bring your kingdom today. Like, let us experience that harvest. Let, us, let the going out and weeping stop. Let us come home with joy. So that's what we're doing on Sundays to, to sort of imagine for ourselves this revival uh, in our midst, this past reality, but this future hope. And that we would live a life of, of saying to one another, when Jesus restored the fortunes of his saints. Remember that? We were like people who were dreaming. Now, we had one big shout for joy. All of the talking that we had was laughter. All of our neighbors, all of the people around us said, wow, Jesus is doing something good for you. And we said to them, yeah, Jesus has done really good things for us. And then as we live our lives, we would say to one another, and we would say and ask God, restore our souls to being living waters. And we'll remind one another all the time, yeah, a lot of life is sowing in tears, but one day we will come home. And no longer will we say, where is God? But we will say, God is dwelling with his people again. Let's pray. Jesus, we are thankful for who you are. We love you. I pray for uh, restoration of our hearts, of our souls back to you. I pray that we would be restored um, to joy. That you would create in us as a church uh, hearts that long to praise you. Hearts that long to celebrate you. 
because you are very worthy of it. Uh, everything you've done, everything we've seen, fill us with, fills us with gladness. Jesus, I pray as we go into communion that we would uh, not have to conjure up some false sense of happiness. Uh, like we've paid a subscription fee. But that you would allow us to walk as a church of people that can hold suffering and joy in the same hand, in the same moment. Thank you, Jesus, for your spirit. Thank you for your work. Pray that you keep working in this time uh, and for this whole week. Amen.